0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. I remember
2: George, George Michael taking a bit of a gentle dig at me it wasn't bitchy that wasn't that bad but he he just sort of said oh mick's gone off doing his family thing i have a streak of shyness that is very easily misinterpreted as arrogance because you keep a certain distance because you don't want to intrude on people you know many of our friends uh, uh his friends at least was was saying that the best option was to put me in an orphanage, you know, or have me adopted. And 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 not through any meanness, just thought they'd like, well, how can a man do that job?
1: Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a man whose voice is instantly recognisable to anyone who had access to a radio in the 80s, 90s and noughties. He's been selling records, more than 60 million of them, for the last 38 years, having arrived in the charts back in 1985 with holding back the years, sounding from the get-go like a fully formed artist. Born in Manchester in 1960, he was an only child raised by his father Reg, a barber. After his mother Maureen abandoned the family when he was just three years old, it was an experience that later inspired him to write *Holding Back the Years* when he was a mere 17 years old. From there, as the frontman of Simply Red, followed enormous worldwide hits with Money's Too Tight to Mention*, *Stars*, and *Fairground*, as well as sellout tours on every continent, duets with some of the world's greats and the accumulation of more gold discs that he probably knows what to do with. And now he's looking to add one more to his collection with the release of a new album. It's called Time. A father himself, he's now married to Gabriella and has been for 13 years and they live with their daughter, Romy, in North London. So let's dial him up, shall we? It's Mick Hucknall. How are you, sir? Well, wow, good morning. Ah, good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. I'm Excellent. really good. I didn't realise that, I mean, gosh, many a year has passed maybe, since you and I have, have chatted, um, probably in some sort of corridor backstage at the Brits in the 90s, I would imagine. Yeah. But um, I didn't realise that you were such a wine buff in your uh, your kind of, you know, older years. It's it's
2: effectively a hobby, actually, Um
1: so, so you had a vineyard for a while, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And then my wife fell pregnant, and we decided that we didn't want to bring up our kid on the sunny slopes of Mount Etna. So <laughs> we came. We came back. That's good. Came back to the UK, and um, my daughter Romy was born in Westminster. Wow. So, what made you want to come back? Well, I'd not actually left. I mean, I've I've always been tax resident in the UK, but. Um, you know, because of uh, at that time when we were members of the European Union, you were able to live anywhere in Europe without any problems. So yep. um, we used to just, uh, I spent some time living in, in Italy and then some time living in, in France. Um, but I've, as I say, I've always been UK tax resident, so it's yeah.
1: not really like I left
2: ever, really.
1: But the travels don't really stop, I mean, you have paused um, for quite some time, but you're back out on the road this year, aren't you? You're back across, got one UK day on the 5th of June at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, and then the whole of Europe. I mean, big venues as well, Mick. You're still peaking arenas wherever you go. Well, we have actually been
2: touring uh, on and off for the last couple of years uh, because, oh, because of COVID lockdown, we cancelled... Uh, I think twice, possibly even three times. And so last year we were very busy, and the year before we were busy, uh, less so, but busy. Um, mm. And this is really the culmination, I think, this this European tour now uh, will be for the a couple of months in June and July, and then I will take a break until 2025, which will be Celebrating our 40th anniversary, so. Oh
1: my goodness, we'll Mick, 40 go years. Yeah. Wow. That's something, isn't it? Mm. I, I Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> there is not a lot of artists that can stake a claim to four decades in and out of the charts, playing to audiences year in, year out.
2: Well, I'm still alive, Um, most of my... my Despite the 90s. (laughs) Well, most of my contemporaries, well, I consider them contemporaries, maybe they started a little earlier than me, of, uh, you know, our industry has a lot of tragedy. You know, Mm, when you look at people like Prince and Michael Jackson, George Michael, all victims of either prescription drugs or illegal drugs, and... um, I am still survive. I, I'm here. I pinch me. I'm still here. Fantastic.
1: And when you look back over the last four decades, I mean, so much has been done, achieved, travelled, experienced. Um. And I just wondered if maybe we could dive into my first question and and talk about time and timing more specifically. So, are you ready for your first question, Mick? Yeah. Timing mean, is often everything, be it in music or in life, and that was certainly true, for example, for Holding Back the Years, which took, I think, five years to become a hit. And then you juxtapose that with your own personal life. Uh, it was also the case when it came to your relationship with your wife Gabriella. You'd had a a two year relationship, I think, back in the early nineties, didn't work out. Met ten years later, and never looked back. You've been married for thirteen years now. So why? Is timing so important, certainly in both of those cases? And, and when else do you think, Mick, that the expression what's meant for you won't pass you by has been true for you?
2: Well, I think it's a question of being ready for, th- mm. th- for things, the things, that the things that come your way. And um, I, in the first part of my career, I was touring, you know, for the first 10 years from 1985 to 1995. I was pretty much touring all the time. And touring is not conducive to a marriage. It's not conducive to a long term relationship, really, uh, because you've got two choices either the, your partner travels around with you and what are they supposed to do all day? It's, yeah. you know, or, or they stay at home, you don't see them for two months. So during that period, I just thought there's there's no point in even considering a long term relationship at this stage. But anyway, mm. As I got older, around about 1998, 1999, I started to think to myself, well, you know, you've got to start getting yourself together. Um, There's there's other things than just being famous and making music. You know, you you want to have some kind of life outside of that. And I think if you don't have that meaning in your life, um, either if you start a family, There's a certain emptiness. Hmm. You know? I mean, I, I remember George, George Michael taking a bit of a gentle dig at me. It wasn't bitchy, that wasn't that bad, but he, he just sort of said, oh, Nick's gone off doing his family thing, as he described yeah. it. I, I don't want to say that marriage and parenthood saved me, but it certainly gave me meaning in the second half of my life here, you know, it's... uh, it's I'm probably... I would say that I I am more rounded and more... I don't mean that in a bulbous sense of being overweight, but (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm emotionally more rounded because I'm still learning. You know, the great thing about being a father and being a husband is that if you open up your mind and your heart, you're constantly learning stuff, you know? Mm. You're experiencing things about how to improve who you are and just keep pushing to make yourself a better person without trying too hard, you know? It's just a sort of,
1: it's a natural kind of evolution as far as I'm concerned. It kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? Because you're right in so many ways, I mean... First and foremost, I don't think I was ever prepared for the enormity, the rush of love, the the absolute love affair of parenting. Yeah. And then the education piece where where you're there to shape this little person. But yeah. as as you're as you're teaching them the basics, you're also pretty much reminding yourself of them. It's quite grounding in as much as it strips back. But you um, you've got to be the bullshit, doesn't it?
2: You've got to be at the right when well, you mention the word timing. You've got to be it's got to be the right time for you. And and I just speak from experience because early on in my career and two members of the the band at that time had children and we were away and they'd get a phone call saying, oh, she walked for the first time today and we were in New Zealand, you know? And I just thought to myself, if I'm going to have a kid, there's no way I'm going to be away from home like this. It's just not going to happen. So when my daughter was born and I, I just said to my manager, look, I I don't want to do this anymore. I need some time out. And however we handle it, it, it's, I don't know when I'm coming back. You know, I've no idea when I'm coming back, but I'm definitely going to stop touring. And I'm not particularly interested in making records. And, uh, I'll see you when I see you. So that was, in essence, that was when we did the farewell tour. I think people, they they got the, you know, Chinese whispers, you get the terminology all wrong. You know, the the, the mainstream media said, oh, we were splitting up uh, and, and uh, I was uh, finished with it. But I didn't, it was a hater. It was, I was saying farewell. Farewell is not goodbye. You know, no, see you soon. Uh, so I don't. Well, see you soon. I didn't know when I was coming back, and mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to devote my time. They always say about being a parent and the kids. The first seven years are really important for shaping who they become. Yeah, and I, and I just wanted to be there. You know, and I was there, and I have been there, every day. You know, and no. it's a great feeling. You know, I mean, now she's independent enough to make her own breakfast, but you know, for the last. At least 10 years i've been getting up 7 30 making a breakfast being the house chef and uh <laughs> and and just kind of living like that you know and it's been absolutely
1: wonderful these, these are the happiest times of my life without doubt i yeah i hear everything that you're saying mick i think you know those those nights when you lie awake and you're trying to soothe um uh an an overactive mind for me it's the first 10 years of my son's life that I always revert to because it was the it was a honeymoon period for me but I I know that's not everybody's experience but reading reading interviews with you as I researched this I could feel the the love you experience for family life of your daughter through everything that you said and through all of the decisions that you've made actually you followed your dad's um kind of role modeling as a parent didn't you he kind of put everything to one side for you and you have you've done exactly the same for your daughter
2: well my, f- my father more so my father was actually as, as I reflect on it over the years my father was incredible you know mm. you're talking about somebody that held down a job he worked um actually six days a week with two afternoons off um, he did all the all the housework. He did all the laundry. He did the house repairs. Um, he did all the cooking. He did all the washing up. I mean, he wouldn't let me do the washing up. I don't know, you know, because I'm left-handed. He would stand <laughs> over me and go, "You're not doing it right." So then he'd end up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, he was,
1: he did everything. I mean, wow. And and we have to remember the times that that we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. there were not many, many many single dads there were none looking around there weren't any you know no. there were certain... widows yes but single dads yeah there were so
2: there weren't any in East Manchester I guarantee you <laughs> um, but, but he, he he just got on with it and and uh, had a very very strong work ethic you know many of our friends uh, his friends at least was was saying that the best option was to put me in an orphanage. You know or have me adopted and 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 not through any meanness just thought they'd like well how can a man do that job how can you know that was the mentality in the 1960s you know growing up in east manchester for example a woman you were expected to be married before you were 24 if you weren't married before you were 24 there was something wrong with you you yeah and and the thank god that these things have changed you know and and the, the whole culture is so different um, then than, than it is now.
1: Gosh, so your dad was encouraged to think about giving you up. I mean, th- this, I should explain to the listener, your mother had left when you were very young, when you were three years old. Um, and you, so your dad had, had to make this decision. How am I going to go forward as a parent? And he never remarried, did he? He never, he, he never had a stepmom. It was just the two of you, which was... Very unusual for those times.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I still don't know. I guess he just didn't have time for a relationship, you know, because mm. he'd have to be home. Um, it was uh, the other thing about, I guess, what makes my character the way I am um, is that I'm very self-sufficient, uh, and and not having a mother. Uh, and having your father that's out working so for example i would finish school at 3 30 in the afternoon my father wouldn't come home until seven o'clock at night so mm. i would go home to an empty house every day and and be on my own a lot uh, throughout my life so you learn you learn how to be on your own you learn how to do things on your own and so between 9 and 11 i became very i became self-sufficient and. That that is, I think has held me in good stead over the years because I don't. Of course, I I love to have people around me, but I don't directly rely on people. I've always got that kind of backdrop, where if somebody lets me down, I'm prepared to do it myself. You know, and it's just in your mind. I think also sometimes confused. I also um. I have a streak of shyness that is very easily misinterpreted as arrogance, because mm. you keep a certain distance, because you don't want to intrude on people. You know, yeah. There's just a certain thing where, um, I, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I was in Harley Street um seven many years ago, and um, as as I was walking into the doctor's. Uh, Sir Alec Guinness came out and I was a huge admirer of Ealing, still am of Ealing movies and stuff. And I saw him and because of my shyness, I just couldn't say hello. I I, I froze, you know? And sometimes when I keep a distance, people think it's arrogance, but it's actually an inherent shyness. And sometimes the weird thing is about shyness, you overcompensate the next time. You you you, you tr- almost try too hard to yeah uh, associate with somebody. So then you either completely over the top, <laughs> or or, or you you're nothing at all. You know you're, yeah. you you're zero. Uh, so again, to go back to the early part, I just feel grateful to still be here. You know, mm. there's there's so show- there were so many moments in my early teens where. I could have, I could have, you know, a lot of my friends ended up in Borstal or ended mm-hmm. up later on in jail, um, because we were doing things we shouldn't. And, and fortunately I got out and it was art school that saved me when I, I managed to secure a place when I was 16 at Tameside college. And my life changed from that point on that, that was, that was the biggest moment of my life in a way at that point because without that, I, I really don't know where I would have ended
1: up. and it But it wouldn't have been good. Do you think that's because you were somewhere where you felt like you belonged? Yeah,
2: exactly. I mean, I, there I was singing all the time from being yeah. about six years old. Just I used to get into trouble in class because I'd start, murmuring and humming and, and, you know, but no one ever told me I was a singer, you know, my father or my uh, family friends, no one ever said, oh, you should be a singer. I just sang, I just sang. And then when I got to art school, of course, it was a visual, a visual thing, but it was a home for a creative person. And, and so many of the artists of the sixties, musical artists came out of art schools. David Bowie, Keith Richards, there's, there's, there's a long rest of them. Um, John Lennon and who who all used art school as a sort a screenboard to
1: the next stage of their creative lives. Well, it's almost like a pit stop, isn't it? It's, It's somewhere where you can gather yourself and be understood. Or at least tolerated, because you're talking about people that predominantly come from working class backgrounds. Yeah. Who the idea of an, you know a career in the arts or a career even something beyond a job, is fanciful. Yeah. Um, but also that the, the the people you've just mentioned there, what you, a lot of you have in common is the fact that in your teenage years music was your friend. You yeah. Know, that well, was only people, and music became your companion. Absolutely. No, I mean that Ooh. was
2: definitely the case in my early teens when music was. So important to me as it is
1: now, even. But but then it was almost medicinal in terms of your mental health. Absolutely, yeah, without mm. doubt. Yeah, and because I mean, you said you never, nobody ever said to you, you're a singer. But can you remember a time when you weren't tuned into music and singing and it just being a part of you?
2: There has never been a time <laughs> when I when <laughs> music has not been with me. I mean, I used to we we had a family of babysit. Uh, there was a group of uh, a family of four daughters, who I'm still very much in touch yeah. with. Uh, and I used to sing for them. You know, I used to I used to buy this magazine called Disco Forty Five, and it had a, oh,
1: it, it had that's all, old, isn't it?
2: It had Blanky. all the lyrics. It had all the lyrics of the current hits. So yeah. I used to sort of sing these hits to to these to these girls and their mother as part of their entertainment. You know, I'd go around and sing the songs to them.
1: They became like um, a surrogate family to you. They lived next door. They, was, they were your women, weren't they? They were your, your, the female steers through those yeah. childhood years. Well, only,
2: only for the first sort of nine years, because once I was around about 10, just before I went to grammar school, they went off and had their own families, and I, I didn't really fit in at that point so that was why again i was even more alone because i didn't have them either um, you know yeah. and i didn't want to intrude on them because they were busy having their own families and and so that was uh that was what also made this emptiness the more, more difficult in my early teens was it was just not having anybody around at all you know didn't you yeah. have three questions? We wandered yes. up. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, don't worry, don't worry. This this is this is the beauty of the show is that yeah. we start with one and, and off it goes, off it goes, off it goes. So we've talked about timing. I'd like to dive into uh, kindness for my next question with you, if that's all right, Mick. Sure. You gave a writing credit to your childhood friend, Neil Smith, on holding back the years, even though you didn't write a word or a note of it. So I wondered if you could tell me what prompted you to extend such a kindness on that occasion and when you've experienced maybe a similar act of kindness by way of karmic return.
2: Well, um... I love Neil, I've known Neil since I was three years old, we're still friends, Um, and he and I used to write songs in my first band, The Frantic Elevators, we formed that band together, Mm -hmm. and uh, we would get together on a Friday night, uh, and he would show me a song that he wrote, and I would show him a song that I wrote, and then we'd go off to the pub and spend most of the evening talking about the Beatles. <laughs> you know, and that was that was kind of what we did, and we did it so um, was we so dedicated to it and and so involved, um that when I achieved several years later my success, you know I wrote all about the years when we were still in the frantic elevators and we were still in it, and. You know, he'd not had the success. I wasn't having the success I'd had. He'd had a, a rough time, um, and uh, I just—it was really a reminiscence. Actually, it was just like, "Well, look, I've had success with this, and now I'm going to give you a piece of that because of our past, just as a sort of uh, a sort of a souvenir, like a memento of the experience we had together." You know, so. Wow.
1: It's a hell of a pension as well, Nick. You know well, that will... That's true.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he's done. He's done very nicely, and that's fine by me
1: because I love him to bits. How does that work then? When you become so, you, you know, you talk about how self-sufficient you had to be as a child because, by virtue of the fact that you had a dad that worked long hours and and no mother at home, how do you then open up into a family unit? And stop being so self-sufficient. Start to learn to lean on people, like your wife, for example.
2: Well, that's 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 the essence of it, right there. Is that that's the learning curve? That's the part you need to learn because mm. the the person you're with wants to give you stuff, but you have to let them in. You have to you have to you you have to give them the opportunity to. And, uh, so it's all well and good me being self-sufficient, but then that leaves the other person feeling empty in that they're not giving. So in, in, in the last kind of 15 years, that's been one of the most important aspects of learning is, is, was, uh, learning to consider the other person and, and to consider that they want to give as well, that, that. Yeah, you know, it's not just about giving to them; they want to give to you. So, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, I feel, even though I'm 62 years old, that I'm still learning. When I don't yeah. feel set, I don't feel set in my ways. Um, I just, I just am open to experiencing anything that comes my
1: way, especially from uh, from my family. Well, maybe that is the kindness that you know—the fact that you got there in the end, Mick. That you you were able to learn to open yourself up to becoming a family unit of, of your own.
2: Yeah, and it's it's just wonderful. I mean, it really is wonderful.
1: You like being a dad, I can tell that.
2: Yeah, I do very much. Yeah, I feel I feel honoured. Um, I feel I feel kind of uh, very fortunate.
1: Okay, time for your third and final question. I wanted to know about the song, the book, and the one object that could sustain you forever. If that's all you had in the world to go to, what book would you choose? What song would it be? What object would you hold on to and why?
2: Well, wow. uh, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, I, I I think the song um, would have to be holding back the years. Uh, yeah. It, because it's sort of... It's it's so autobiographical. Um, it's not something that I sit around playing all day. It's kind of who I am. So um, it, it's it's within me. You know, what I mean, it's not it's not like it's not like saying to somebody, "Playing, what would be your favorite song that you could take away on a desert island?" That would be a different answer, mm-hmm. but. It, the way you phrase the question, I would have to say, well, that that's kind of who I who I was, um, and and in a way, who I am. So I would I would choose I would choose that.
1: Um, Do you remember book, where you were, Mick, when you came up with the lyrics and the melody? And yeah, I was because... in my bedroom. I was uh... in
2: my bedroom in my dad's house in my my bedroom, and uh, I'd only just recently started to learn to play guitar and uh, I think I was just, I didn't even know three chords. I just was learning and I
1: just sat there and it just came out. Just incredible, wow. really. Those lyrics were so grown up at any age, let alone at that age. Um, was it the same with the lyrics? Did they just fall off the tongue? Yeah,
2: exactly. Wow. Yeah. Now, Ian, to answer your question regarding a book, um the, the The book that comes into my mind is The Great Gatsby by uh, yeah. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, <laughs> it's I, I I love that book. I love the way it captures the era. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it, and it's it has a melancholy to it as well. Uh, that it's it sort of represents the end of the the first great musical movement in the twentieth century, which is the Jazz Age. And and mm. it has it just has this incredible. Nude, to the to the book. So regarding the book, that's the first thing,
1: first book that came into my mind. Nice, that's a really nice suggestion. You're right. It's full of character and charm. It's it's almost a piece of social history as well, isn't it? When you read that, because yeah, you, you are yes. you are taken uh, to the times in which it's set, uh, and you're right. Musically, it was there was quite a revolution happening in terms of science, the, you know, the jazz movement, for example, which has gone on to inform so many other genres of music as a result.
2: Well, the, you know, one of the things that um, I have a kind of beam up on it about is that I don't think African-American culture gets the credit that it's mm. really due. And when, you know, in that, at the beginning of that time, when you started out with people like Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong, you know, they without Hugh Kellington and Louis Armstrong, there wouldn't have been the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Which seems like a long grab, but when you really, when you really added up, you, you you actually what they did was was that they used Western instruments with expression, mm-hmm. and no one had ever used expression before. Everything was notated as a piece of classical music. Mm-hmm. You know, it was subtitle, uptight, wasn't it?
1: Constrained.
2: Saxophone wasn't an instrument that you would use to talk. You know, solo instrumentation and solos in that respect weren't there before. You know, people played direct notation without expression. Mm -hmm. And that that expression changed everything because people then could actually start bending notes Mm -hmm. And that became more expressive in how you, you know, uh, a great example. Then the next step would be Sinatra, and you, if, if you hear how Sinatra sings, he tries to tell the story, but he also plays with the notes. They're not, they're not written down. You know, they they're the expression, and that whole thing came about in the 20th century. It wasn't there before. Mm. That all came from African American music. You know, without. Without rock and roll, there wouldn't be Elvis. Without Elvis, there wouldn't be the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and all that music Mm -hmm. would never have sounded like that. So we owe a great debt to African-American music in the 20th century that shaped the way we dress, the way we speak. And I just want to always try and give African-American culture as much credit as possible because without it, we wouldn't speak the way we do. We wouldn't dress the way we do. The music wouldn't sound the same. And uh, it's an extraordinary contribution to mm. cultural culture that seems to get ignored or seems to just be
1: sort of swept under the carpet. Sometimes I feel. No, you're absolutely right. I think without it, we'd be culturally quite barren. Um, yeah. When you when you, when you talk about those artists, I, I don't know if this is something you've done with with your own. Daughter, but I I tried to sit down, and, you know, when my son was just getting to an age where he was showing an interest in music, and I wanted to expose him to heritage artists that I thought were brilliant educators, brilliant contributors. Have you ever done the same for your daughter? And if so, who are the artists that you've sat down with? Well, she's kind of discovered
2: it herself, but she's she is an absolute Beatles fanatic. She knows she knows every song. It's extraordinary, and also she loves Bob Dylan. So um, those those are the two kind of artists that I think she really reaches out to. But she's voracious um, in in searching for music. Um, she loves jazz, uh, mm-hmm. and it's I, I'm not really promoting it anymore. She just kind of does her own thing. But she's not that interested in contemporary music, strangely. Not not through any... I, certainly, I've I discouraged her. But she just is rather envious of, of people growing up in the 60s. She kind of wished that she was growing up then. I, well, I, and I, even though I say to her, it wasn't a bed of roses, especially for <laughs> girls. You know, yeah. you, you, you wouldn't have been the opportunities that you have now. But nevertheless, I think it's more from a music and a cultural mm-hmm. point of view in that respect that she... Really
1: admires that era. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Good music lives on forever. Um, uh-huh. And what about the one object that could sustain you forever, the one thing that you'd, you'd always keep close?
2: Well, that will bring me back a bottle of wine. How about that? Yeah. Let's do that. But it has to be I've a never ending
1: been... bottle of wine because it's not going to last, it's not going to sustain you for long, Mick, otherwise. <laughs> Okay, well,
2: I'll have the bottle there, and behind the bottle will be a a very large barrel. (laughs) And I can can refill the bottle when necessary. I'm not, funny enough, I'm not a heavy drinker. No. uh, I would describe myself as a moderate drinker, but it's probably because really good wine is meant to be savored, and you don't really glug it down, and um, so... I've found over the years that having a passion for wine has actually moderated my alcohol intake, not exacerbated it. Because it's given you a respect for it, do you think? Well, I just enjoy tasting different things, you know, and uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. If you can find really great wine these days at moderate prices, you know, i look... <laughs> Many of the New World wines, places like the... Australia, New Zealand, South America, Chile uh, produce some beautiful wines that you can, you don't need to be a millionaire to enjoy. Yeah.
1: What's your favorite,
2: what's your go to wine? Well, if we're going to talk about white wine, I would say a bone dry Riesling. Me? Really? I love, I love Riesling. Um, it's, you don't hear have... a lot
1: of love for Riesling. And, and I mean, uh, that was a big drink. I think I remember my mum drinking that a lot in the eighties, and then it Vegas just sort day. of disappeared.
2: It was very in those days. It was a bit like that she yeah. was very, it was very sweet. Yeah, and uh, a Riesling Spats, Sp- Spatlese is a sweet, a sweet missing, But I like them uh, very dry, trocken. So it would be Riesling trocken, um, and I love the kind of crystalline uh dryness of it, and uh, it it's it's like almost um, it feels like a kind of a alpine mountain stream. You know, it's nice. got that kind of freshness yeah. that I love. So I'm I'm a big big riesling fan. I love to have it as an aperitif instead of champagne. Um, mm. The way the Germans have it, they tend to drink as an aperitif. But
1: I I, I love I love riesling. Your travels actually must have exposed your palate on every level to so yeah. much, be it culturally, you know, in terms of the food you food you eat, the, the wines you drink. Um, yeah, you must have learned so much when you think about that young man that sat writing, holding back the years on three calls in his dad's bedroom.
2: I didn't drink wine at all until I was about sort of 24, 25. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first experienced Italy, I think was the first
1: time I really thought, Wow, wine is real interesting. I also think if you're working from working class stock, as, as as I am, as you are, like people drinking at home was, was just not a thing in the 60s and 70s. No. I mean, no. you went to the pub and had a drink. People didn't drink wine at home. That was that was for the upper classes.
2: They didn't even My dad didn't even drink beer at, at the table. No, it was just, uh, he'd have a cup of tea.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for talking uh, to me. It's been really nice to catch up. I look forward to the new album, Time, which you'll be playing just one show in the UK, June the 5th, Shepherd's Bush Empire. Tickets are available at simplyred.com and you can get the album wherever you get your music.
2: And you, as I'm looking at you now, have not changed a bloody bit. You, you're the same. You look exactly the same. I uh, want th-
1: some of what you've got. <laughs> I'll tell you what it is, Mick two ring lights that's it
2: (laughs) (laughs) well you know that's why you can't look at me i don't have
1: those and if you're in the mood for more great conversations with other great vocalists we've got episodes with Skin from skunk and nancy uh, Islands and Melda May, she's brilliant, Gary Barlow, Steps, Danny Minogue, All Saints, Delta, Goodrum Louise, Hanson, Travis and Charlene Spiteri in our back catalogue. And good news, don't forget, we've started dropping a brand new mini midweek episode every Tuesday featuring some of the best bits from our best guests. It's called Something From The Cellar. Vintage cuts served to your feed every Tuesday afternoon. So make sure you don't miss a moment of them and make sure you're following the show. Just hit the follow or subscribe button. I'll be back Friday with a brand new guest. Until then, thanks for listening. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?